Hello, friends, and welcome back. You are listening to Art Blog Radio in Philadelphia. My name is Natalie Sandstrom, and you are here joining us for the final episode of Art Blog Radio's mini series on cultural accessibility. Today, we're going to be doing some forecasting, exploring from various perspectives how the arts can be more accessible in the future. This is particularly timely as so much has changed and continues to change over the past year with the COVID landscape. First of all, I am recording from my home in West Philly on the traditional land of the Lenape people, past, present, and future. My name's Natalie. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a white woman with curly brown hair. I'm wearing a black and white blouse with puffy sleeves, and I'm sitting in front of a white wall in my home. Today, I'm joined by a few of our excellent guests. First of all, we have Donna Ellis, co-owner of Hands Up Productions, an ASL interpretation company for theater productions here in Philadelphia. Hands Up has also recently branched out into some museum programming, so Donna brings a lot of knowledge to us today. We're also joined by writer, art historian, and fellow art blog contributor, Andrea Kirsch. And we have Nathan Deacher, an independent autism consultant. These three represent an interesting cross-section of the arts ecosystem and are here to share their thoughts with us on where access might go next. So thank you all three of you for being here. And I think we should just go ahead and dive in by giving our attendees, our listeners, our viewers, a little bit of info about sort of what you're all bringing to this conversation. So if you could each start just by introducing yourself, your work, and giving us a little taste of what you're doing to think about access now or in a past role. I'm happy to go ahead and get us started. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie, for the introduction. My name again is Donna Ellis. I am a white woman with uh, curly red hair, uh, pulled back in a barrette and a ponytail. I have black glasses and a plain black long sleeve shirt and behind me is a gray backdrop. As Natalie said that I am um, a co-owner of Hands Up Productions with my partner, Brian Morrison. We have sought to provide high quality ASL interpreted performance opportunities throughout the Philadelphia region, primarily in um, theater settings, but as Natalie has said, in anything that might be considered a performance setting, including museums and other arts institutions. We've been um, very grateful to partner with many arts organizations throughout Philadelphia. And we look to bridge that gap to make the arts accessible to um, people who are deaf and hard of hearing and primarily use American Sign Language as the mode of communication. Thank you. Andrea, you want to go next? This is Andrea Kirsch. I am a white woman as the French would nicely say of a certain age, meaning my hair is graying. Uh, I'm wearing a chartreuse blouse and sitting in my study, which is colorful. It has purple walls and books and postcards behind me. I have a broad experience of a lot of positions in museums and then taught museum studies where I spent a lot of time thinking about the institutions and how they were positioning themselves relative to all sorts of visitors. Knowing Natalie has been a learning curve for me because <laughs> the museum world is much more consciously addressing issues of accessibility now than it did historically 
Although I think those of us who are in the art museum field in particular have always been aware that art offers an opportunity for some people to respond who would not respond to reading, would not respond to hearing about things, that the art itself is a language that offers an alternative for a lot of people. And my own concerns with the museums would tend to be more with what they show than with the programming. And a lot of what I've read about accessibility is focused on programming, on lectures, on tours, things like that. Thank you. Yeah, Andrea, you pointed to so many great points there, both from a programmatic as well as curatorial standpoint. So I think there's clearly rich grounds for us um, after Nathan introduces himself as well. Hello, I am, uh, uh, I am Nathan. Um, I am a Caucasian male with a thinning uh, brown hair and a, fi a five o'clock shadow. And as uh, Natalie mentioned, um, I am uh, I'm not independent autism consultant, but in my day job, um, I've been working, I work, uh, I have historically worked with um, museums as a guest service associate. So I'm kind of a hermetic figure. I'm, I'm mediating between the general public and um, a culture uh, and educational or artistic institutions. It, from my own, so I, I, because I'm on the spectrum, I think it's, I have, I've usually given advice, you know, related to autism related um, and just uh, autism or disability related issues that, you know, confront, you know, uh, museum, um, uh, museums and other uh, and similar institutions. Um, although I've been increasingly kind of interested in, uh, in, in branching out from that and kind of understanding um, museums as learning spaces um, where um, where people sort of, uh, joyfully participate um, in uh, in learning about pattern languages through a sort of experiential learning. Um, it's uh, it, 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 a little bit more high concept, but um, but yeah, I but it's but it's certainly been inspired by my work working for my current job uh, at the Barnes. Thank you. I love the phrase you just used, joyfully participate. I want that like in a banner. That's, that's just such a beautiful note to start us on. So thank you. So I think clearly we have a great group here with lots of different knowledges and experiences to bring to this table. And so I think I'd really love to just open up a free form dialogue thinking about where are we at in the arts right now with accessibility, particularly after the past year of closures, working from home, doing programs from home, et cetera? And maybe from there, we can sort of start to build our wish list of what would people like to see change? Anyone want to take that one for a spin first? I will a bit. One of the things that people who study museums have found is that the overwhelming number of people don't attend museums on their own. They attend it with a friend or family member. So the interaction is already there between the visitors. Certainly with COVID, once we've been let into the museum again, they're much quieter spaces that certainly professionals enjoy. On the other hand, that doesn't keep the institutions going. 
That being said, other than the major museums in New York, unfortunately, most museums are quiet a lot of the time. And in that sense, have a lot of flexibility as to what they are offering and have gotten good about making people comfortable who mightn't be comfortable because let's say their six month old baby is there and cries. So that actually a number of museums have specific days encouraging people with small children to come. And I think that being less formal about how we enter the museum is a possible thing for the future and something that having looser expectations, I think, is one of the things that accessibility is involved with, particularly in terms of expectations of the other visitors at institutions. Mm. Andrea, that's a really interesting point, sort of thinking about maybe in some ways, some museums haven't been as impacted as far as attendance in the last year. And thinking about the flexibility of those spaces. From a performance standpoint, you know, that reminds me of a lot of maybe theaters or theater groups will do something called relaxed performances um, that, you know, Donna, I'm not sure if you have any experience interpreting for that sort of space, but maybe that could be something that we build upon here. Uh, yes, we definitely have provided interpreters um, in some settings where they have done relaxed performances. Um, that's been a, a very popular um, option that many theaters have decided to offer. Um, my thinking went in a little bit of a different direction when you were posing your initial question, if that's okay. Yeah, please. In our world, it's been interesting to see how Zoom in some ways has narrowed opportunities, but also expanded other opportunities. Mm -hmm. And for us, um, many of the arts organizations pivoted, as many of us have, to Zoom programming or virtual programming options. Um, it took us a while, I'm sure like everybody else, to get our footing and see how we could contribute to that. But it did give us an opportunity to further explore what I think we'll talk about later in terms of a wish list, but we did really get to tap into, um, it, there's a difference between access and representation. So mm -hmm. we provide access, but representation is really having deaf people present their own art and uh, even present their own interpretation using their uh, language. So Zoom gave us some interesting uh, creative opportunities, which we took advantage of. So when there were um, digital programs, we were able to reach out to some deaf talent that we know in New York and otherwise, and be able to bring them in as the interpreters, as opposed to us providing that bridge and access, we were able to use deaf talent, deaf artists. And one of the reasons that was available was because many of these virtual programs were pre-recorded and therefore captioned. So the captioning was available as the source language for deaf performers and deaf artists to become those interpreters as your accustomed to seeing on the screen. So that was really an interesting and exciting opportunity that we'd like to see continue as we're looking toward building our new season and seeing what develops now that we have both of these um, resources available, virtual as well as on site. That's where I was thinking. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great expansion, thinking about this word that maybe we're all starting to come across a little bit more of hybridity now that we've had this opportunity to have in-person experiences, virtual experiences, what will the arts community do going forward to maybe not have to choose, which could be really exciting. Sort of going up with what Donna uh, said that um, how COVID uh, forced them you know, to adjust 
And, you know, by having a lot of these you know, virtual events, we're able to include more people uh, and, and performers and artists uh, that would have not normally been able to um, participate, um, you know, in normalcy. Um, I definitely think that the institutions that will prove most resilient um, will be ones they'll have will that will be much more diffusive and also have a much more experimental approach and um, curational way. So being able to have um, uh, you know pop up exhibits, you know, being able to display information uh, to um, audiences maybe outside of the physical space. Um, I, I think those will prove to be the most, I think, the, the most resilient and also anti-fragile kinds of institutions, um, because it's a constant ongoing learning process, uh, rather than a, than a fixed, um, rather than a fixed installation. Um, so similar to the kind of like the Kunsthaus that, you know, the ICA has, where there's no permanent exhibits. I definitely feel that that more experimental and fluid approach, not only will I think it make be more accessible to people. I actually think you'll actually make for a much more interesting museum experience. So I think we actually can kill, kind of kill two birds with one stone um, by moving to a more experiential, um, process-oriented view of museum installations and curation. Yeah. Andrea, I think this sort of speaks to your wheelhouse a little bit. Or maybe more than a little bit. <laughs> Museums have done outreach in the sort of the way you're talking about in various ways. Um, it's never going to be the same as going to the museum if it's with art, unless it starts and you commission things by living artists, and that's what they want to do. And that certainly offers the richest possibility. Um, a number of them have disabilities of various sorts that they are already working with, or friends or family members sensitive to those issues. Commissioning things is a challenge. <laughs> you don't know what you'll get. You agree to take it and the artist comes up with something. So that's it. certain kind of institutions are willing to do that and certain kind of institutions are in the financial position to do that. I think to an extent, with our pre-existing institutions that would be say a general art museum with a general collection that covers a range of periods and covers a range of cultures, their collection is the reason people go ultimately. And figuring out ways to allow people to go to the museum and interact differently with those objects sounds to me like something they may be thinking of. So that there would be certain rooms that have things that um, have sound going on and less emphasis on text. There would be certain rooms where people are encouraged to touch things. Some museums have experiences of that sort, but it's always as part of a group. And I think that offering people to come on their own to the institution and make their own way in certain spaces where you really loosen the way in which people are expected to behave is probably a more reasonable thing for the large community museums. Some of these sort of maybe alternative presentation methods seems to be a theme it's that's arising. People think about this for children. 
Yeah, I think that's I that's find often it interesting for adults. I like to touch. <laughs> and the only things I've ever seen are exhibits to touch or oriented towards children. So, you know, they assume children want to know what chain mail feels like. So if it's an exhibit, I went to an exhibit at the National Gallery of Art on arms and armor, and outside you were allowed to handle the chain mail. Well, I am sure they were not doing that for me, but it was terrific. Same thing at the Museum of Natural History in New York. The Natural History Museums have some sense that people like to touch. And of course, when you have things like mineral collections, it does no harm to them for people to touch them. So they encourage you. And um, yes, I really think we need to explore. We're much more um, flexible with children and we understand that children learn in multiple ways beyond issues of disability. Every child has their strength as to the way that they learn. Well, so does every adult. And I think that that's the kind of thing institutions could emphasize. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think, I think the last time that I was in a museum that had a touch component, maybe it was like three or four years ago, it was at the Denver Art Museum and it was a Jeffrey Gibson exhibition. Um, and he is an artist who, you know, uses lots of very tactile beading and leather components. And um, he's an indigenous artist. And so a lot of his work takes inspiration from those craft and art and dance histories. And there was this whole wall outside the exhibition space that had little samples of each item material that he used and it was amazing it was the coolest um and I think having these different options as you said is great for different learning styles but also if we're thinking about disability access that's a wonderful option or a wonderful tool as well you know I, I even think about the different approaches that local Philly institutions are taking like um the muter makes raised maps that you can check out from their front desk. That's amazing. You know, they, they have, I think Donna, maybe you worked on these, the ASL videos that are on their website that I just love. That's actually a good example of what I was talking about before. For those ASL videos, we were able to bring in a deaf professional. He actually produced the ASL interpretation and that was used at, there's a school for the deaf in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware that's very nearby. And many of those students got to view and understand those artifacts uh, in a really native natural way before they were able to go in and then uh, enjoy the museum in person. That was very effective. I think that it's interesting that we allow this privilege of experiencing, having this almost a synesthetic experience of this in multi-sensory integration of touching things, listening to audio or, uh, or, um, or even like, or I remember I went to the African American History Museum. And I remember they actually saw a soul in the cafeteria. It was actually exclusively like traditional African American cuisine. Even eating like soul food is very much part of the uh, experience. Like we grant, usually we grant that kind of flexibility in this much more holistic approach with children because they think all oh, their minds are like very plastic. You need you need to sort of. You need to teach them in a very experiential way, 
But I think it strikes me like, why don't we have that same approach with adults? I mean, increasingly neuroscience is showing that human beings are capable of forming like new pathways, new connections. Um, and, and why why shouldn't museums and other like institutions that pay the public learning um, kind of um, reorient themselves to that kind of model? Um, when I was at the Franklin, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if their brand strategy has changed with COVID, but one idea that they were having was they would have different exhibits. Some were core exhibits, like the giant heart or, um, or I think the train downstairs, which were key facets of their identity. But then they have like, a bunch of uh, varying levels of exhibits, like evergreen exhibits, flexible exhibits, pop-up exhibits uh, that would have be a different durational, uh, that would have different durations. And so, so visiting the museum every year would be a slightly different experience, It'd be forming different connections between different ele- different aspects of, 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 of science and technology. And, it, and, it, that, and that to me seems like a much more fruitful and genuinely novel way of um, interacting with the exhibits, not by sort of recidifying your already sort of ossified wor- uh, way of looking at the world by going to, you know, your, the Renaissance galleries or the modern art galleries, you know, kind of seeing the formal pattern languages that are similar between all of them. Um, I, I think that is, that should be the goal, I think, of museums um, going forward. Mm. Yeah. I like this sort of flexible, experiential theme that keeps coming up. And it kind of makes me wonder about the the breakdown of how to enact these kinds of shifts. And so I'm wondering, you know, maybe Nathan, Donna, I mean, any of you could speak to this, but what does it look like to be a contractor or a partner for an organization, um, maybe starting on their access journey or maybe further along versus being um, maybe more ingrained as part of that organizational culture? And are there differences and what might those differences cause? I just want to respond real quick to answer that question, but also just listening to this conversation, it makes me think about Um, Sometimes when we come into a space as a contractor, um, changes need to be made because our population is is visual and so there's sightline issues or there's lighting issues or things like that that have to be addressed. But um, I would say almost every time what benefits, like you're talking about children, what what would benefit this particular group that I'm more uh, familiar working with really is universal design. You know, better lighting is better lighting and better sight lines are better sight lines and um, a variety of access to material just benefits everybody. So one of the things that we found, even though we might be coming in as outsiders, um, often uh, our needs or the needs of our community end up really being closer to universal design than for one specific limited um, group of people to access that space. Mm. Yeah. I had the benefit when I was working for a museum of an aging father who was a very good critic and representative of what, as your eyes change, he could or couldn't read in the labels. He also was a wonderful um, person to watch in terms of his exposure. I took him at the very end of his life when he was quite ill. to the Miami Art Museum to see an exhibition. Then I wanted to run upstairs and see the Agnes Martin exhibition. I said, Dad, this is rather severe. 
And he said, you could say that again. <laughs> I said, just sit on the bench and I'll go around and I'll pick you up at the end. When I got there, he said, I feel like I'm sitting by the sea. So for him, sitting there with the art was the access, spending mm -hmm. the time, no one saying anything about it, nothing to read. And in my case, not even intending it. It was just going to be, I knew it wouldn't hurt him. And it was an opportunity for me. So one of the things to be aware of is that all of us will have less vision, probably worse hearing, may move less spryly. And those of us who like to go to museums will like to continue that. So, you know, the more that these services and these issues are not seen as something separate from the mainstream museum planning, the mm. better. Yeah. Yes. And when you're asking how a contractor, as opposed to a person who's like an on-site member of the staff, I assume you mean, might contribute, I would always just um, uh, encourage the museum uh, or the artistic space to go into the community, not to make assumptions about what accommodations are or what changes might be appropriate, but to go into the community. I can speak obviously most closely to the deaf and hard of hearing community, that there are often assumptions about well, they want captioning or they want ASL, but it's a very diverse community even within that sub-community. So one of the strongest things that I would say is really go out and ask, don't make assumptions, but go out and ask um, the community members that you're looking to bring into your museum what their needs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nathan, you look like you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, it is interesting because I think I've kind of been speaking much more to my own personal experience being on the spectrum um, and advising uh, institutions on how to individuate, you know, or, or, or customize, you know, their environments to make it more accessible um, to um, people of that community. Um, but one thing I, this is just from my own perspective as being you know, autistic, I don't, I kind of feel like the discourse around talking about disabilities needs the kind of shift from one of just simply like negative rights um, to like, you know, you're, you're free from obstruction in our sensory overload, you know, the, 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 the sort of the discourse of access, which I think is good, but I think it can also be a little limiting because it almost, I, I think in the, done by the wrong speaker can kind of sound patronizing. You know, that's why I'm increasingly kind of focusing on the sense of like, um, of, um, of spaces that allow people to realize certain potentials or capacities. Um, and, and, and I think obviously that's, that what that looks like is obviously gonna be different depending on the community you're serving. Um, if it's the deaf community, um, it's going to be, um, you know, increasing, you know, visual language um, with the blind, it's audio or tactile uh, information. There's not one size that fits all, but I, I just feel that simple, simply just trying to focus on access, I think kind of obscures the vital good, I think, that museums and art institutions are offering. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't think we should get too bogged down um, with that discourse. Or I think at least, at least we should be, be able to evolve beyond it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'd really like to kind of pick up some of these threads here. Um, so much good content. I mean, I think, first of all, Nathan, you bring up this great point of this is such a huge group. It's a changing group. It's a group that people enter and exit throughout their lifetimes, as Andrea pointed to. And, yes. you know, maybe something that fits well with the needs of someone who's part of the deaf community might be the total opposite of what another person needs. And so having these, Nathan, you said one size fits all solutions, you know, that's not necessarily um, a solution. And so I think that what Donna was pointing to about universal design and thinking about these processes very holistically is kind of a great um, structural move for arts organizations, individuals to consider moving forward. I recently got to talk to um, Lisa Sonnenborn from Temple University. And in our conversation, you know, we were talking about kind of what this access landscape looks like during COVID. And she said something to me that I loved. She said, um, access is the flower, not the frosting. You have to bake it in from the very beginning. And I think that everything that has been said so far, you know, you all really have captured that spirit of we can't back into something like this. So this might be kind of a nice chance for us to think a little bit about our wish list. And I think a lot of these points have come up already, right, with multimodality and representation and commissioning. But are there other ideas, either from the standpoint of supporting staff or supporting scholarship or supporting visitors? What else might we want to have change? The obvious thing would be to have staff with disabilities so that everybody is aware all of the time about what it means to interact with someone who can't see or someone who can't hear. Um, I learned why those parking spaces are important. Accessible spaces. <laughs> elderly father. They yeah. didn't make as much sense to me before. And I think the ex I would love to see museums that don't have a separate section on accessibility for people with disabilities, that that should be part of a general audience. Mm -hmm. And everyone, and so that you're not segmenting off people by the senses that they have problems with. And what you're saying is we offer a variety of ways to interact. And if you want the following things, this is where you'll find them, or you can call ahead and make reservations. I would just add to what Andrea is saying. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, yes, my first thought too was to diversify your staff, to have a staff that can bring internally all of these points of view. But I would also encourage you to bring in, uh, in my world, I think of deaf people and deaf artists, but artists who are creating the work from their own perspective as well, not just bringing access, but having the artist, their art also speak to what you're asking as well. These points of sort of staff representation makes me think of maybe some organizational barriers, right? Questions that I see or 
um, qualifications on job posts that are like, must be able to lift 20 pounds. Like there's probably somebody else who can lift 20 pounds if it comes to it, you know, and sort of even thinking about structurally, what are the ways in which um, language in job posts might be a barrier, you know? And I think that's something that ArtReach and their trainings is kind of helping to remind people of this sort of language. And those are some things I would like to see on maybe a, a larger, like structural level, I guess. I'm also thinking about how, because of Zoom and because of COVID, um, big arts organizations and organizations in general have had to pivot in a direction that prior to this, they would have said they couldn't do, that you couldn't work from home, that people with disabilities couldn't have virtual access when necessary. Clearly we can, clearly we can. So I think this is really becoming an opportunity now post COVID to see what some of those descriptors as you were talking about, maybe you don't have to be able to use a phone, maybe you can have virtual access. Like it's a broader um, definition now um, that can bring in a lot more people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of adding to that, I mean, I think we've seen in so many aspects of our society that COVID, you know, pardon me for using this word, it's been overused so many, so many Silicon Valley trust funders, but it has been a, a, for, a source for like creative disruption. Um, it has fundamentally, like, it, it, I think you're also like seeing this, you know, with the fact that you know, workers are now, especially people in the restaurant uh, and, and hospitality industry are like demanding, that, you know, they get higher wages uh, for, for their jobs. And uh, now that they've had a taste for, you know, actually being paid more on, you know, unemployment insurance than they did at their actual jobs. Um, and, and I think a similar thing, I think, um, for music, uh, for a lot of other institutions that had to like pivot um, to, you know, uh, distance work, on um, remote work. Um, I think there are many people, especially those who are disabled and for whom commuting to a physical location is incredibly difficult. And now as businesses are trying to return to business as usual, I think a lot of people are saying, no, wait, this makes sense. Like, um, it, you know, even, even, even outside um, where I live in South Philly, there's so many restaurants that like moved outdoors and it's such like a pleasant um, in, uh, urban environment. To not, you know, to not have uh, cars, you know, dominated by streets and for people to be, you know, having dinner outside. I, I think there's so many aspects of society that we've now realized are arbitrary and, and, and in some ways very, I mean, almost like stumbling blocks for people who are particularly disadvantaged. Um, so, and I, I think we can't return to business as usual. Um, and, and we really have to learn from the kind of forced changes that a lot of institutions had to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nathan, I think that's such a great point to wrap us up here that we can't return to business as usual. And I think for me, being part of this conversation with you all, there's been so much generative brainstorming that's taken place and, and thinking about what a new business model, arts model, community model could look like that's not as usual is a great challenge for everyone who's tuning into this. So um, with that, gonna wrap up today. And as we close this conversation, we're actually also closing this mini series on cultural access. Thank you again to Nathan, Donna, to Andrea, and to everyone who has joined me previously for these conversations. Um, it's just been a couple of short episodes, but I think it's been a great 
taste for a huge topic with so many other players involved. And I hope that the series has given you a good introduction to some of these conversations happening in the field. I know that I've learned a lot and I hope that you have too. Um, remember that there's going to be some recommended resources on the page with which this will be posted. So feel free to follow up with further information, learning tools, links to organizations like ArtReach and Hands Up, and more. So thank you for tuning in. Thanks to ArtBlog for being such a great hub and advocate for Philly's arts and culture scene. And thank you again to today's speakers. Bye. Ha, ha, ha.